Welcome to the PA is in the show created by PAs for PAs where codependency with your supervising physician is a thing of the past. Optimal team practice is the future and physician associate has taken the place of physician assistant as the professional title of choice. I'm Tracy Bingaman and I'm obsessed with redefining what success as a PA looks like and what it feels like. Here you'll find the mindset shifts, systems, and processes I use to escape healthcare burnout and integrate my work into my life. Work-life balance is a myth and an integrated life where you thrive professionally, not a balancing act, is the goal here. My mission is to help you to grow into a unicorn PA who loves their job, has abundant energy, time to spare, and work-optional financial freedom. The PA is in. As PAs, we are lifelong learners. We have to be because what we learn in PA school is simply not enough to get us through every job and every specialty that we are going to take throughout our career. My guest today, Vanessa Smith, is a hand ortho PA who's going to share with us her experience working alongside hand surgeons for the last 14 years, and also her passion for education. She's going to share with us some clinical pearls, some must not miss things that you definitely want to know if ortho complaints are ever a part of your regular clinic schedule. Without further ado, here she is, Vanessa Smith. Vanessa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So I would love it if you could just take a minute to introduce yourself to our listeners. Tell us who you are and what you do. Sure. So I'm Vanessa Smith. Uh, I'm a physician assistant in orthopedic hand surgery, and I've been doing hand surgery for 14 years. So I've kind of found my niche and my passion and have found how uh, I not only love being an expert that people come to with questions, but also just find myself caring for the whole patient and not just their hand. Cool. Did you do general ortho or any other kind of specialty before you ended up in ortho hand? Uh, during PA school, I did an orthopedic rotation and I got to see spine surgery and total joint replacements and foot and ankle and sports medicine. And then I got to be a part of hand surgery. And I thought, geez, hand surgery is where it's at. You get to sit down while you operate. You um, Patients aren't very sick. So they get to go home after surgery. They don't stay the night. So you don't have to round early in the morning. And, uh, and, and there's a lot of things that can go wrong. There's a lot of anatomy. So it always stays interesting. I, I never found myself getting bored with hand surgery. Uh, and I was very blessed uh, right out of PA school to find a job with an orthopedic hand surgeon. Uh, she was also starting her career and we kind of started our careers together and she was a phenomenal teacher. So I, I just feel very blessed to have worked with her. And then when we made a move from that city to a city closer to family, uh, I was able to get a job again in orthopedic hand surgery. Yeah. I also feel like hands are one of these things that like I you don't know what you would do without your hands. Like this is a really, really important part of people being able to live their lives and function and perform very basic to very complex activities, right? Yes, absolutely. I had a, a total joint surgeon joke one time that hand surgery is easy. Uh, this, you know, bad outcome, the finger's a little bent, good outcome, the finger's straight. And he kind of joked and I said, ha, wait till that's your finger. Yeah. Right. Like right. we don't the person whose entire livelihood 
is based on their ability to use their hands. Right? Yeah. Like, so we were joking, but yeah, it's kind yeah. of a funny thing. Yeah. If you can't hold a mallet or you can't hold your instruments, like you wouldn't be able to do your job. Like, and I think there's certain people who certainly use their hands more than others, but nowadays like typing all of these things that we have to do where we have to use our fingers have to function appropriately. Our hands have to flex appropriately. That's a huge deal. Yes. Yep. And then there's the component of um, how much our hands are a part of who we are. So when there's a traumatic injury and there's a loss of a digit uh, or multiple digits, how that impacts the psyche and the rest of their well-being. Uh, so that is also becomes a component of care is the psychosocial kind of uh, just mental well-being after a traumatic injury. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine that that is a life-changing thing that really has a huge impact on people and their lives. Do you guys work with um, like a psych team or social workers, or is that something you refer out if someone is kind of struggling and navigating that? Uh, there's two things. Uh, between the physician I, surgeon I currently work with and myself, uh, he has a wealth of knowledge, but he's a man of few words. And then I'm a really good listener. And and so um, I, we balance each other well. So sometimes it's just list, being there to listen for the patient, but I can also tell when that's not going to be enough. And we do have a social worker that we can get involved to get the patient more resources. Sure. Yeah. It, you just described beautifully what I think is really the ideal partnership between a physician and a PA, right? We're working in the same space. This person has a certain skills that I will never have, right? And I have certain, you know, gifts and talents and ways to communicate patients that maybe are their areas of weakness. So how has that been sort of navigating? How long have you worked with your current physician that you're with? Yep. We've, I've worked with uh, Dr. Vandemark for 11 years now. And he, uh, he has said, and other people have joked that the only reason he's still working is because of me. So, but I take that, try to take that very lightly because I know that I'm just part of a team. So, uh, so he's 73 now and still like loving work, coming to work. And we have a surgical tech and we have an RN and we have an MA. And so it's really, uh, just, I just had a birthday too. So I think you kind of like pause and recognize like, wow, I have a lot to be thankful for. Sure. Absolutely. I think that often that we have this place that is so close to patients, right? They come to us when they're, you know, having pain or functionally can't do something or had an injury and they are potentially at their lowest, right? These patients are vulnerable and they're coming to us like, Hey, can you help with this? Right. I'm having this problem. Can you help with this? And to have this opportunity. And it's, it doesn't always feel like an opportunity when you're in the middle of a busy clinic and you're behind three notes and someone is asking you about something. But really, every time we have a visit, it's an opportunity to be there for that patient for what they need in that moment. And it sounds like you guys are really doing that well. It's, it's hard to do that well. And I, I've worked with surgeons for a very long time. I think it's, it's a difficult thing to navigate how you fit in a surgical subspecialty. So I'd love for you to tell us like, what is a day in the life? Do you go to the OR? Do you go to clinic? What kind of patients are you seeing on a regular day? Yes. 
So on a day-to-day basis, my uh, I'm in a season right now where I don't go to surgery. Okay, my first job out of PA school, I worked with the um, Dr. Christina Ward one-on-one, and we would go to surgery. We would round together. We would go to clinic together. We did everything together. In my current role, because we have a surgical tech that has worked with the surgeon longer than I have, uh, she goes to surgery, which at first was hard for me. Right. I enjoy working with my hands. I enjoy procedural stuff and not always being in clinic. It seemed like, how am I going to do this? But I came to really appreciate it because the season of my life was that we had young kids and I didn't have to be in the OR at 7 a.m. every morning because she was there. So uh, my I'm currently full time clinical. I will help in the OR if someone is out. Um, so a day in my life uh, currently would be getting to clinic around eight o'clock or shortly thereafter. And then I have an independent clinic in the mornings where I see post-operative patients uh, managing post-operative infections and therapy, working closely with our certified hand therapists. We, we um, enhance surgery. We are like, they are right-hand man, those OTs. So um, working closely with them and then also managing a non-surgical hand call. Okay. So that's people who have seen, been seen in ER or acute care um, over the weekend or overnight, and now they need to have follow-up with ortho. So then on our end, we're sifting through those referrals. Hey, this definitely needs surgery. Oh, this one doesn't need surgery, but it just needs somebody to manage it. So we get a good outcome. So I see a lot of things like mallet finger, boxers, fractures, non-displaced distal radius fractures, um, other like phalanx and metacarpal fractures that are non-displaced. And on x-ray, they may look non-displaced, but clinically we got to check for rotational deformity. So I might just throw that pearl out there. If you see a finger fracture, look at the x-rays, but also look at the hand and look at the finger cascade. Is there any rotational deformity? Um, so anyway, so I see and manage those patients uh, and those I manage from beginning to end. So they never end up seeing the surgeon because uh, again, I'm at a place though in my career where I feel confident. I know what needs surgery and what doesn't. If I have any concern, I definitely grab, I work with five hand surgeons in, um, at the practice and we'll grab one of them to say, hey, can I have you take a look at some x-rays? Can I tell you about this patient? But have really loved being the person that just provides their care and and does the work notes and, and manages their questions and all of that. And then um, in the afternoon, then I work with uh, Dr. Vandermark. We have a combined clinic. So in that clinic, we're going to see more uh, complex patients where we have um, maybe bilateral arm pain and numbness. And we're trying to figure out, is this coming from a cervical spine etiology or is this a peripheral compressive um, neuropathy going on or even a peripheral neuropathy from chemo or diabetes? So it's problem solving. It's like the brain's really got to be clicked into high gear Um, or, um, you know, and we're not taking call as much anymore because he is getting older. But previous to this, it would be those cases combined with um influx of distal radius fractures when it's winter or um, hand lacerations when people are using table saws in the summer. So um, it's a, it's kind of a combination, but in, I'd say in, in the mornings, I'm seeing nine to 12 patients on my own. And then in the afternoons, we're seeing 15 to 20 patients combined. Yeah. So this is like, you're moving. This is a busy, you know, you have a lot of patients that you're seeing on a day. And then um, when you're on hand call, that is your f- full clinic day you're being interrupted pretty regularly with messages through the EMR or phone calls. Hey, Vanessa, there's a provider uh, 
from a town an hour away that needs you to look at some x-rays and wants you to know what to do. So you got to pause what you're doing, get on the phone, give some advice. Okay, what was I doing? And then get back to what you're doing. Are you sick of getting mystery beef at the grocery store from some unknown corporate production line? Promised Land Meats offers premium beef raised from a family farm, personalized to your family's needs and delivered to your door. We've been a customer of theirs for over a year and we love the meat. Even Dan, who is really hard to impress when it comes to beef, won't stop raving about the quality of these cuts. You can truly taste the difference. Choose the Farm to Family subscription plan and get a customized farm-raised beef box shipped to your door every one, two, or three months. Skip the grocery store and shop with your American farming family by going to promisedlandmeats.com or click the link in the show notes. Absolutely. Yeah. I think uh, a whole lot of the day, I think we use the word triage for like the ER or like things that are acute, but all day long, we're triaging things, right? Like what's most urgent? Who needs what? You know, what do I need to do next in order to get this done? So I I don't know uh, if I've ever shared this on the podcast before, but my now eight-year-old son had hand surgery when he was really little, like a toddler. He was probably three or four. And I noticed that he was just terrible at giving a thumbs up. And I thought he was just bad at it because I'm just like, I don't know. I didn't consider that it was something. Yes. I didn't consider this something medical. So if you guys are listening to the audio, go and look at this YouTube video because I'm going to show you. So he was used to give a thumbs up like this. He could not extend his thumbs. And I went to see one of our, I, I, two of our, my dear friends who are hand surgeons here. And, and they said, Hey, Trace, we can release this in the OR. You know, take us 10 minutes. No problem. And I was like, but it's my baby and I don't want him to need surgery. So we did all of the therapy. We did splinting. We did, you know, therapy. Our therapist was amazing because therapy with a three-year-old looks a lot different than therapy with a 50-year-old, right? So we're playing with slime and he's doing buttons and all of these things to try and get him to release um, this bilateral trigger thumbs, which I'm sure you can tell me more clinically than I know about it. Um, And he splinted and he splinted and we did like six months of splinting and then he could extend but he couldn't flex. So then he looked like he was hitchhiking around and he had to manually like flex his thumbs, both sides. And I was like, well, the therapy worked, right? But not all the way because we need him to both be able to flex and extend his thumbs. And they said, okay, I went back to the surgeon and this sweet surgeon was so patient with me. Like he knew I was concerned about anesthesia and I knew a little bit, but not enough, you know, enough to be scared, but not enough to know I shouldn't be worried about this. Um, And he said, Hey, I think it's time, right? I think it's time we take him to the OR. And they did. And, you know, I was at my hospital, super comfortable. I knew all the team that was taking care of them. And as soon as he was in the PACU, one of the nurses came out and got me. And the surgeon said, uh, took three minutes on the right side and four minutes on the left side. And so I spent seven months of like therapy trying to avoid seven minutes of surgery. (laughs) But it's different when it's your own kid. (laughs) Like it changes your threshold, but but we had a great experience. Now he, you know, and he he could hold a crayon the right way. All of these things that I hadn't noticed that we're very resilient as human beings, I think, especially kids. So he was adapting, he was holding a crayon kind of like this, because he didn't have the ability to hold it the way that he should be. And so the teacher said, Oh, his handwriting got better, you know, he's coloring. And I was like, Oh, I didn't, it was limiting his activities. And I didn't even realize to what extent this was. And all healed. And now he can give a thumbs up or hitchhike or whatever he wants to do with that thumb. (laughs) Wonderful. (laughs) Wonderful. So I would love if you could give us, like, I know you're saying, Hey, 
look at this cascade of the finger if they have a fracture, you know, to look for spiral deformity. What other things for the non-ortho provider who's listening, how can we be better about taking care of either hand or orthopedic injuries in general when we're seeing them in ER urgent care primary care to make sure they get what they need and they get to who they need to see? Yes. So I, I thought about this for a while. Um, we, as PAs, right, we're lifelong learners. We are always going to be learning and always need to keep learning. Uh, but I, three things kind of stood out to me that I see over and over, and I'd just love to encourage the, um, the listeners to consider. So the first thing to consider would be x-rays. When someone has a finger injury, get x-rays of the finger versus getting three views of the hand. We're not going to get a clear picture of what's going on with the finger if we were for looking at the whole hand. So get an x-ray specific to that body part. I've also seen where someone com complains of wrist pain and for whatever reason, the ER got forearm x-rays. Well, we don't get the proper views of the wrist and the distal radius in forearm x-ray. So get, get specific of whatever is injured, wherever they're pointing to, ask them to point where they feel the most pain, and that's where you're gonna get specific x-rays. Um, so dedicated finger films are different than hand x-rays, so please uh, consider that. Also with x-rays, if you order x-rays, look at them. We have seen time and time again where a provider will order x-rays and dismiss the patient and say, we'll call you if we see anything. Well, the problem with that is a potentially non-displaced fracture will become displaced because you've dismissed them without any immobilization. So get the x-rays, bring them back to the room, look at the x-rays yourself. Even if you don't have a radiology report, the more you look at the x-rays, the more you will get familiar with them. And if you see something grossly abnormal, then you know you've got to immobilize it. Uh, the other thing to consider with x-rays is if you push on anything, if you reduce a fracture or a joint, get post-reduction films. Super important. Uh, me taking hand call referrals on a Monday morning, looking at a finger dislocation, and those are the only x-rays I see, is that this joint is dislocated. There are no notes in the computer. We have a full clinic day. I'm trying to decide, do we need to bring this patient in today to get this finger reduced? Is it still dislocated? Only to have the patient come and say, yeah, they pushed on it and now I can move it. And I'm like, okay, wish I would have known that. So if you push or pull on anything, get post-reduction films. So those are kind of the key things with x-rays. The second thing would be splinting. Uh, splinting or immobilization, we do it for a couple of reasons. One, we do it for a fracture where we see something that needs to be supported. Splint. Uh, and I'm talking splinting, whether it's through a home medical order that you get an off-the-shelf sort of splint with the Velcro straps or a splint that you apply yourself with cotton cast padding and fiberglass or plaster and an elastic bandage. Um, th you know, those are the two different types of thoughts. And again, I'm speaking from an upper extremity perspective, right? Lower extremity stuff. You got boots, you got post-op shoes, that sort of thing. But the idea of immobilization. Um, but the other thing with splinting is if there's a laceration in the palm, volar finger, dorsal hand or fingers where you are maybe concerned about a laceration of a tendon or nerve, then splinting would also be appropriate. So not only addressing the laceration, 
but immobilizing that area in case there is a nerve or tendon injury uh, is super helpful when it comes to long-term management if there is uh, an involved uh, other structure. The other thing to consider is the x-rays are normal. There is no laceration, but they are, the patient is in a world of hurt. They are just like, you, they can't get pain under control and there's tons of swelling. They are going to feel more comfortable in something and usually more comfortable in a splint that you put on with the cat, cotton cast padding, fiberglass splint, and elastic bandage versus one off the shelf. Um, but I think it's important to remember uh, with the splinting at least, patients are paying so much money to come see you. Give them something. Yeah. Is it ever wrong? Like, is there ever a situation where you would cut, someone would come to you and they'd be splinted and you'd be like, ah, I wish they hadn't splinted this person. Like, can you go wrong with no. splinting? Okay. So no, the there time. are times where we see a badly displaced fracture that someone, someone put in a splint from home medical. So the patient's been taking it on and off and you're like, oh, why didn't you just put them in something they can't take off? But in general, something is better than nothing. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So x-rays, splinting. And the third thing I thought of uh, is digital block, right? So in acute care and ER and occupational medicine, even when, when a finger is injured, uh, crushed, slammed in a, in a you know, hammer, all, all sorts of things, nail gun going through the finger, all sorts of things, uh, we have to get, provide local anesthesia. The, the old adage that we all learned and continue to learn, no epinephrine in the fingers, nose, penis, or toes, that has been debunked. That is not true. Epinephrine is safe in the fingers. Uh, and so I'm speaking about lidocaine with epinephrine and potentially using bicarb as a buffer. But the idea that we can use that to provide an awesome digital block without traumatizing the patient. So often the story, <laughs> I keep educating because I keep hearing the story, is that they poked me so many times in the ER and I could still feel it. I said, just put the stitches in. I was tired of being poked. So whatever was being done was not effective and it was traumatizing the patient. We've also seen it where their block and um, local anesthesia in the ER or acute care was so traumatic that when they come to see us and we're talking about surgery under local anesthesia, they want nothing to do with it. They want to be asleep because they don't want it to work, right? Because last time it kept hurting. Yep. Right. And they don't want to endure what they did before. So now we are doing a surgery with more sedation and anesthesia than necessary, which increases risk unnecessarily. So really the digital block performed and, and that first evaluation is going to set the tone for their management of this injury. So I have a, a great talk that's free and it's on my website, um, orthorefresh.com, but it talks about how to do that block simply and effectively. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think making sure patients are comfortable, even when we're doing a procedure that makes them uncomfortable, right? We're stitching something up, we're pulling something out, we're, you know, reducing something like that's not pleasant and no one is happy to be in this situation. But what, you know, if we can do the block correctly so that they truly can't feel it and they shouldn't be able to feel anything sharp, right? They shouldn't be able to feel. So tell us what you do the digital block. You watch the video on ortho refresh. You do it the correct way. How do you know it's working? Yes. So 
the process and the research that's behind it, I would say. Dr. Lalonde is a hand surgeon out of Canada that has done a lot of research regarding lidocaine with epinephrine, wide awake, uh, local anesthesia without a tourniquet for hand surgery. So we're doing a lot of hand surgeries awake. So we know that lidocaine with epinephrine administered uh, correctly is effective. The key is give it time. So how often do we go to, I'm not, I don't want to throw dermatologists under the bus, but they numb it up and then they cut it off, right? I mean, and we all have, we all have a schedule to keep. So I understand that. But when it comes to local anesthesia for a digital block, give it at least 20 minutes. So once you do your digital block, tell the patient, we're going to give this time to set up, go do something else, go finish your note, go see that other patient, then come back. You know that that thing will be numb. Okay. Great. Yeah. That's a great tip. Now I'm sure that you see, and this might not be exclusive to hand, but other colleagues in your practice that are doing ortho joints or ortho spine, inappropriate referrals. I think every specialty has this thing where they're like, ah, why do they keep sending us this patient? Or why do they send them with this workup and not that workup? Or why don't they let us work them up? Or I wish they would work them up. So what are the things that the non-ortho provider can do to make the ortho provider's life better, but also improve the patient's experience? Because no patient likes that when they get there and they're like, I got my imaging and blood work. And you're like, that's not what we needed, right? We, we need other stuff or we didn't need this at all. You know, like don't like not stop ordering inappropriate stuff. So tell us what are the faux pas that people are making and getting people to you or to ortho in general? Yes, that's a, a great question. Um, so much of orthopedic care is non-surgical. A lot, many of the musculoskeletal conditions and injuries that uh, that patients get and sustain will improve without surgery. So I think one of the most frustrating things is when a patient is referred to orthopedic surgery and they have done nothing non-operative, not, nothing, no conservative treatment at all. Um, and, and just as frustrating as it is for us, I know our physical therapy colleagues are also frustrated when a patient will come to them. I was talking to a friend, patient came to him and said, yeah, I've been, bo I've been bothered by my shoulder pain for the past year. And I've been telling my doctor about it. And they finally said, well, I guess you could try therapy. <laughs> so yeah. the physical therapist is a little like, are you, do you not believe that what we do is actually helpful? And really physical therapy, occupational therapy is a mainstay of treatment for orthopedic conditions. So, uh, it, it's familiarizing yourself as a primary care provider with the treatment that you can provide to patients before referring them to ortho. And and you're going to, I think another key thing would be getting to know the orthopedic providers in your area. Because just as much as I say this, there are definitely people out there who say, no, we want to be the ones to order that or manage that or do that. So, but a couple examples would be like shoulder rotator cuff pain, rotator cuff tendonitis, bursitis, whatever, you know, that sort of shoulder pain uh, that we have, they come in complaining of pain get going with physical therapy, six weeks of formal physical therapy. You ordering that might make the biggest difference that they don't need a surgery. So, so physical therapy is a treatment for rotator cuff 
pain, even if there's a tear. Physical therapy is the treatment because a lot of people can live with a rotator cuff tear and don't need a repair. Yeah, if you can function and get to the point where you're able to do these things pain-free. I think the other thing that popped into my mind as you were saying that was as providers who are referring people to PT, to OT, to ortho, we have to do a better job about credentialing the person we're referring to, right? So you say, I'm going to send you physical therapy. Our physical therapists are great. I've had so many patients see them and their pain gets under control and they're back to work and they're back to functioning. Those three sentences change the way that that patient is thinking about therapy. And it makes a difference because they're seeing you because they trust you. If you say, well, I guess we could try therapy. It's totally different. That patient's like, okay, we're trying therapy. Like they already feel like it's a waste of time versus saying, this is super helpful. It's helped so many of my patients. This has made such a difference. You'll be in great hands. I really like the team at this office on Main Street. I'm going to give you their card. Like totally different experience as a patient to have your provider that you trust saying, do this. It will help you versus, well, if you want to do voodoo muscle release shit, go see the therapist. Like it's different. Yes, absolutely. And, and like, like you talk about building up them and their expertise, they have a doctorate in physical therapy or our our hand therapists have their masters um, in occupational therapy and have done additional training and certified to become a certified hand therapist. So these, these are highly highly skilled, highly knowledgeable people in the musculoskeletal system uh, that definitely we need to be building them up to our patients. Yes, for sure. Mm -hmm. That makes a big difference. Uh, Just a couple other examples because I mean, there's orthopedics is vast, right? So I just thought of a couple examples. Uh, Cubital tunnel syndrome, right? Numbness and tingling in the ring and small fingers, uh, radiating to the ulnar aspect of the hand and forearm and medial elbow, often resulting with a little bit of weakness. So complaints for that, the first thing we could do is have them wrap or splint their elbow when they sleep. It's a common thing where people sleep with their elbows all bent and curled up and that pinches the nerve in the cubital tunnel even more. So telling them about how we sleep plays a big role with our daytime symptoms and having them wrap or splint their elbow at night will help with their daytime symptoms. Most PAs bring home a decent paycheck, but aren't sure that they're investing enough or what approach to take for student loans. Kayla Pepperday is a certified financial planner who works specifically with APPs. Seeing that PAs, including his wife, were overlooked and physicians were treated with respect in the financial planning industry, he sought to rectify this mismatch by serving PAs with the excellence we deserve. Caleb's mission is to help make financial planning affordable for APPs regardless of their asset level. Head to advancedpracticeplanning.com and hit the schedule a conversation button to book your free consult. Your money is your largest wealth building tool and failing to utilize it well could leave you wanting to retire without enough in your accounts or still having student loan payments when your kids are ready to attend college themselves. Caleb's clients can enjoy their money guilt-free while feeling confident in their savings and investments. Head to the show notes, tap the link, and call Caleb for your free consultation. On the call, Caleb will help you to determine whether his one-time or ongoing financial planning services are right for you. I actually, I have not shared this much medical information about me or my family on any other podcast episode, but I have this. (laughs) 
so funny that you use this as an example. I have this. Um, so, and I definitely do sleep super flexed, like super flexed with my hands up to my face. I do have, um, like a splint that when it's bothering me, I'll extend my arm at night. Um, and that has helped tremendously. It actually used to bother me a lot in the OR because I found the way that I was standing bent in the OR with the suction when I was doing, um, a robot, like a certain way positionally, I would have my elbow really, really bent. And I was like, gosh, the OR is really bothering me. But I found when I splinted it at night, I didn't have my symptoms during the day, even when I was in that position, even when I was in the OR. So again, non-surgical solution to an ortho problem. I'm like, she's just reading my mail over there. She knows all the things. <laughs> so funny. Uh, this one, uh, another thing, arthritis, right? Our, our general population is getting older. Everybody gets it. Okay. So, um, basal or thumb arthritis that's in my wheelhouse, right? When we get pain at the base of the thumb, really common, uh, especially in women, as we get older, men get it too pain, aching pain at rest, sharp shooting pain with any pinching or gripping, taking lids off of water bottles, opening doorknobs, all those things. Things we can do non-surgically, have them wear a splint. There are specific splints for thumb arthritis that people can wear during the day. So so there's a different time when we splint arthritis. It's during activity, not at night. Uh, And those are available. You can, home medical stores carry them, but Amazon also carries a lot of home medical devices and they're often a little cheaper than what's at the um, home medical store, depending, again, insurance plays a role too, because insurance will pay for a lot of these, but if they have a big deductible, all that stuff. Anyway, splint, heating modalities, uh, feel good for thumb arthritis, topical creams, there's the -the over-the-counter stuff, Uh, CBD cream, often we have, you know, case scenario patients, yeah, this really helps, no, it really didn't help, but that's something to try. Um, And then an NSAID. I find patients get really confused when we say, take some ibuprofen and Tylenol and this should help. Well, how? And for how long? And how much? So I find a really big component of my patient education is explaining that NSAIDs work differently than acetaminophen. And here's all the different medications in the NSAID family. And the way that they work is by taking them consistently. So we've, if we take naproxen, that wears off after 12 hours. So if we take it with breakfast and dinner every day, no matter what, that gets that medicine to a steady level in our system and gives us the benefit of anti-inflammatory. Now, I'm not advocating you do this forever, but maybe you just mark on the calendar, hey, for the next three weeks, I'm just going to be real diligent about taking this. It helps. Okay. So... If we just say, yeah, take some ibuprofen and Tylenol, see if that helps. I don't find that that piece of education is uh, very helpful or at all um, in the process because we in orthopedics, it's a mainstay, right? So meloxicam is one that we commonly prescribe. Again, we're looking at kidneys and heart and all other medications to make sure that we're not interacting. But because that has a half-life of 24 hours, people only have to take it once a day. And so it's better compliance. So it's it's just educating the patient on arthritis is a part of life as we get older. How do we manage the symptoms? Because arthritis will flare and then we'll calm down. Then we'll flare, then we'll calm down. So how can you equip the patient to manage the symptoms when it flares? Yeah. And I think you probably have more compliance with that meloxicam because it's prescribed, right? Like people think it's like more better. Oh, it's better. It's a prescribed medicine. Okay. I swear 
I don't usually do this. I have a story about how my dad cured his chronic back pain with ibuprofen. So <laughs> this is like, I was a child and my dad <laughs> gave up drinking caffeine and ended up with these like terrible caffeine withdrawal headaches because he used to drink a lot of diet Coke and he switched to caffeine free diet Coke. I'm not endorsing this as a lifestyle, but I'm just saying that's what he did. So he stopped drinking the caffeinated diet Coke, went to caffeine free diet Coke, started getting these terrible headaches. We were an ibuprofen family, right? You know, everyone has their like painkiller of choice. We were an ibuprofen family. So my dad started taking ibuprofen pro to ward off these caffeine withdrawal headaches he was having in the afternoon. So he'd take it like, you know, three or four times a day, he's taking this ibuprofen and he had terrible back pain. He used to have to like log roll out of bed, was like really limiting his function. And he did this for like just a couple of weeks, right? As he's withdrawing from caffeine, as he's having these headaches and he's like, my back, my back doesn't hurt. And then he stopped the ibuprofen because he stopped having caffeine withdrawal headaches and the back pain was gone. So like what was happening? I don't know. Some inflammatory process, right? Something musculoskeletal in his back. I'm like an eight-year-old kid when this is happening. I have no idea about this, but I have been told the story over and over again. And as you're saying this, I'm like, it works. Like it was like the testimonial is here. It works. So if you're really consistent with it, and I think we miss the mark on over-the-counter education for our patients. We're like, take some cough syrup, right? Take some anti-inflammatories. We don't say which ones. We don't say how often. You know, we maybe say like, go talk to the pharmacist or go read the label. But I think patients are more likely to be, as you said, diligent, consistent, taking it routinely for a three-week trial. If you say, I want you to take this twice a day, morning and night for 21 days, I'm going to write it down. I'm going to write the medication name down. I'm going to give it to you. It's more prescribed than suggested. I think patients probably respond to that. And also they know how to do it safely. So they're not sporadically taking it. They're not taking too much. They're not taking enough because if they're not taking enough, it's not going to be effective. And then they're going to be just as frustrated as they are on the day. That they and, and patients know their bodies. So you got to listen to them too. Some people say, oh, ibuprofen doesn't work for me, but Aleve works great. Okay. Well then talk them through a leaf two times a day. Or people say, oh, leave gives me headaches, but ibuprofen doesn't affect me at all. And you're like, okay, let's do ibuprofen three times a day, right? Like you just find, you listen to them. They know their bodies. They know what, what affects them or um, has adverse effects and kind of go from there. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. And I, and I, I am also very cautious because some, some people say, well, I don't like taking medications. And so I, I just come back with that to say, uh, when people get into trouble with the anti-inflammatories is when they are taking them like candy and they're doing it for years. That's not what I'm advocating. I'm advocating for consistent use of the anti-inflammatory for a short period of time with food. When you take it, you take it with food. You mark on the calendar, I'm gonna do this for three weeks. I'm gonna do this for a month. And then you're really consistent with it for that period of time and then you stop. And if you find you need it longer than that, then we ask that you work with your primary care provider to manage it long-term. So some people do need meloxicam every day for years because of their arthritis, but they're working with somebody who's watching their kidneys, watching interactions and, um, with other medications, that sort of thing. Yeah. That sounds like a great way to do that and to take good care of patients. So they leave really knowing what to do. I think when there's confusion, it's unclear and they're less likely to be compliant and they're less likely to feel better when they're not exactly sure what we want them to do or when we want them to follow up. Awesome. 
So you alluded to ortho refresh a little bit earlier, but I would love if you would take a minute to tell us all of the non-ortho providers listening, what we can learn, what is ortho refresh and how it can help us to take better care of our patients. Yes. So orthorefresh.com came out of a place uh, for me personally as a a way to teach because I love teaching. I always have loved teaching, but I never saw teaching and medicine combined. I always thought when I'm done with my medicine career, then I'll go into teaching. And what God has shown me is that no, I can I can actually blend them. I can I can teach in medicine, uh, but uh, what I've also learned is that it's not it's not on my shoulders. So uh, I've been very fortunate. I was uh, actually very fortunate to be the first PA on the board of directors for the American Association for Hand Surgery, AAHS. So that was a, a huge honor uh, and privilege, but I got to know hand surgeons from around the world, which was stinking awesome. Uh, and so as I started this endeavor to realize like, there's just, there's a lot that uh, physician assistants, physician associates, nurse practitioners, physicians need to know who work in family medicine and ER and Ahmed and acute care, there's so much. Orthopedics has been well documented as one third of all chief complaints. So what happens is during school, medical school, NP school, PA school, we are being taught everything we need to know to pass the boards. And I've spoken with a couple uh, staff that say, yeah, and ortho isn't a big part of the boards. So we can't spend as much time talking about it. So then we haven't spent as much time talking and learning about it. And then we get into practice and it's one third of our practice. So uh, orthorefresh.com is a, a website that is a library of talks meant to fill the gap, to refresh on what, what do I do for cubital tunnel syndrome again? Or how do I treat a mallet finger? Or how do I diagnose uh, a rotator cuff? tendonitis versus adhesive capsulitis, and what can I do as a primary care provider? Um, so it's it's the idea of how can we have ongoing uh, educational content without having to fly to Miami, nothing against Miami, uh, you know, go to a conference or spend a lot of money to, to go to a CME something uh, to refresh on all things ortho, but have something accessible and engaging and at our fingertips when we need it. So that is the that is the thought with Ortho Refresh is these are talks that are short, anywhere from eight to twenty minutes, focused on what primary care providers need to know. To uh, we the goal is to educate and equip them to evaluate and manage non-operative treatment for orthopedic conditions and injuries. Awesome. So that that's the that's the uh, the overarching theme of ortho refresh. And so there's uh, that's on the membership side uh, are the talks by specialists in these areas. So I'm working with orthopedic surgeons, physical therapists, occupational therapists, PAs that are specialists in their fields to create talks targeted to primary care providers. Uh, whereas ortho bullets, you get lost in all the surgical stuff and it's all reading. And up to date is reading and lots of reading and lots of reading. These are talks. These are video presentations uh, that you would see at a conference, but they're, you can log in and look at them. So that's on the membership side of the website. On the uh, the free side of the website are a couple things. One is a section 
called How To. And those are all free videos. They're also on YouTube, but it's how to put on a good splint, how to do the effective and simple digital black, how to bandage a fingertip. Like it's not that hard, but then when you get into practice, you're like, how do I wrap these things? So just some simple things like that. Those are all free videos. And then there's also the Ortho Minute newsletter. So that's a monthly uh, e-newsletter that is put together from the talks that come in from the specialists and in one page kind of summarizes a diagnosis and key things to look for and key things with diagnosis and treatment. So uh, yeah, orthorefresh.com. Go check it out. Awesome. Yeah, we will link that in the show notes. So anyone who is curious and saying, hey, these are things I didn't know, but need to know clinically. This is a site that I want to go look things up when I see someone on my schedule with shoulder pain. And it's just a thing I don't feel super comfortable with. We will link that in the show notes for you guys. So you can check it out. Vanessa, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really, really appreciate you sharing your time and your expertise with us. Thank you so much. It's been so fun. So thanks for having me. I love any episode that reminds me that we can change the way that we show up for patients through education, educating ourselves on new and available resources, ways to do things that are current standard of care, and maybe aren't what we learned in school, or maybe aren't what we've been doing in practice, and for educating our patients on being clear for what they need to do in order to get back to work or back to feeling better. So that is all for now. This PA is out. Congratulations. You've just joined an awesome club. By listening to a full episode of the PA is in, you are officially on the Unicorn PA team. Welcome aboard. What most team members do is they subscribe to the podcast because that allows them to automatically get the latest episode of the show. The life of your dreams exists on the other side of taking action. Keep making small shifts and keep getting better. Your life will improve, your career will soar, and you will have the confidence you need to create your own success. I will see you in the next episode. This PA is out.